everybody. Welcome to the American Songwriter Podcast Network. This is All Heart with Paul Cardall. Welcome to All Heart. I am your host, Paul Cardall. Thrilled today because we have a Slovenian on the show, Mok Gergic. He's been all over the world playing his guitar, and we have him here with us. Now, the reason I like Slovenia, I think you guys know this if you followed my career. All of my wife's family lives in Slovenia. There's still a couple that are in Cleveland, Ohio, but Slovenia is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. If you don't believe me, go watch the Rick Steves Tours of Europe on PBS. He will tell you that Ljubljana, Slovenia is his favorite place to go. It is literally the last place on earth that feels like a fairy tale where Rapunzel might be living. So obviously, uh, we've had great experiences because of the Slovenian culture. Uh, when we met the first lady in Washington, D.C., my wife was able to speak to Melania Trump in the native tongue of Slovenian, and they had a conversation. It was so beautiful to watch. But that's a whole other podcast. Today, Mok Gergic, he's just a brilliant, gifted artist who plays all over the world, and I just signed him to a new record label. My record label is called All Heart Records. And he's the first artist to be signed on that, to do beautiful instrumental music, very similar to what I've been doing for 25 years. If you like my music, you will absolutely love this new EP that Mock has called Silent Night. In fact, I am featured on there playing the piano, a duet with him and his classical guitar. It is gorgeous. And you can get that wherever you like to get your music, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Deezer, I don't know, wherever you like to go. But without further ado, this is a conversation I recorded previously with Mock. I was in Cleveland with my mother-in-law, who is Slovenian, and we just had a great time chatting. So uh, here is my dear friend and new artist, Mock Gergic. Hey, Paul. There you are. How are you? How's it going? How's my background? I think we match. Dobre. It's good. <laughs> Dobre. Dobre. Yes, this is, uh, you, you clearly are a Slovenian because I'm in a Slovenian office. Oh my goodness, look, we have a leitmotiv going and everything. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm Slovenian, totally. <laughs> what's what's mind-blowing about you, Mok, and the reason I'm so excited to share you with my audience is, number one, you know, just your bio alone. New York Times loves you. The Washington Post love you. You've gotten great reviews. You've had an amazing journey. Um, born in Slovenia, we're gonna talk about your life. We're gonna talk about your mm. music, some of your training, and what you hope to accomplish with your career. But you are one of the beautiful performance virtuoso of classical guitar music, but not just classically trained where you've gone and performed in very prestigious venues all over the world, mm. but you're now venturing into experimenting with some contemporary classical, mm. unless you're John Williams or someone unique of that caliber, uh, mm -hmm. you don't, you can't just walk into a, a hall of prestige and perform contemporary music. Well, uh, and Furthermore, I mean, to sort of elaborate on what you just said, contemporary music has also so many different 
strange these days you know what is contemporary music uh there's you know there's new age there's jazz there's classical contemporary which in within itself has you know heaps and loads of different uh, varieties and so i think what we're facing today paul is uh, a little bit of confusion and then sort of like people tend to listeners tend to migrate to what appeals to them you know uh, with classical music and you know i can certainly speak from experience because that is my background it is my academic background um, and still i am in fact a classical musician um, I would say that the classical contemporary music has pushed the envelope so much that um, that the market for it, the the listeners that are devoted and dedicated, are really in a very small little fraction of an audience because it it is pushing the limits of the listener with its experimentation, um, you know, some on implementation of other styles so much that it's it's really quite hard to just sit back, relax and enjoy the ride. It's uh, one really has to devote a cognitive uh, presence to that type of music. But then yet again, you know, in contemporary world, we have uh, so many different styles uh, that off living, you know, breathe, living, breathing creators that um, that certainly serve that purpose, which is, you know, let's make people feel good. You know, uh, let's let's have them listen to something beautiful, uh, um, maybe not so abrasive. You know, something that that uh, makes one feel good. Uh, and uh, more or less, that's how you and I met, uh, I believe, in the first place. Well, and that, and there was a Slovenian connection. That's right. We uh, met in Los Angeles. It was the pre-Grammy party for then Olay, which is now Anthem Entertainment. Mm -hmm. which is the record label and publisher that I sold my catalog to. And we met through a mutual friend, Gilles Godard. And uh, I remember Gilles, who is a vice president over at Anthem, very well respected, has done a lot of deals in the music business. And he came to me after he had signed me and said, you got to meet this. I mean, he is my absolute most favorite classically trained guitarist and he's just incredible. I want to sign him. I want to try. And, and he had nothing but amazing things to say. Mm. And then he said, uh, you know, it's Mark Gurdjieff. And then we met. And then right off the bat, my wife uh, noticed your accent. Yeah, yeah. And my wife, who is a first generation Slovenian American, uh, you are from Slovenia. You were born in, which part mm -hmm. of Slovenia were you born? I was born uh, in the capital in Ljubljana. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you could call a center. It's not the epicenter, but it's, you know, certainly central. It's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. And there's a, there's a beautiful statue of the famous poet, uh, oh, in yeah. the center. Uh, what's the, poet, yeah. what's the poet's name? I can never. So the poet's name is France Precheren. And, uh, that statue is rather, uh, you know, rather significant. Um, I'm not sure how much of the story, you know, it's, place right in the city center and uh, the poet sort of extends his uh, his arm towards the what then suppose su supposedly was the apartment of uh, his beloved mm. uh, you know never attained love whom he dedicated so many poems to uh, but supposedly was not reciprocated that's the story at least he's our most 
maybe most famous poet and also uh, the, he wrote the, um, what we today use as the lyrics to our national anthem. Interesting. He sounds like he had a Beethoven experience. <laughs> Certainly a Beethovenian. A, a, yes. mis, a misunderstanding of love and he goes and he writes, bum, 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 bum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my heart is breaking inside. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like uh, for you growing up? You're 33 years old. What was it like 33. growing up in Slovenia? Well, I must say um, Slovenia in many respects is a very comfortable place to live in. It's a small country, about a two and a half to three hour drive across the sort of the longest diagonal. Uh, we have everything from a little bit of the seaside to beautiful Alps, to sort of plains, a um, uh, lot of great wine, a lot of great culture. The Roman roads went through that, uh, uh, through the main few cities. Um, and in general, I would say it is, it is a place where one can build a, a nice, healthy society around uh, oneself. The reason why I ultimately left, I mean, I'm, you know, tuning in here from Los Angeles um, is uh, because the country, you know, is a small country, meaning the market is rather small. So the opportunities uh, for a young, ambitious, you know, anyone, uh, myself, a musician, uh, were, you know, uh, were minimal, let's right. say, you know. Um, so then I first, uh, went to um, uh, to do my musical high school in Croatia in Zagreb. I still were, was doing my regular high school in uh, Slovenia. So I spent my week splitting it uh, in half uh, between Croatia and Slovenia. After that, I went to Vienna. Speaking of Beethoven, uh, where I did my undergrad, and then and then I wanted to go to the States um, because the market here seemed. Uh, excitingly big, you know, um, and as any real college uh, applicant, I just sort of scouted colleges around and then somehow I ended up in Los Angeles. What was the main reason that you started playing guitar? Why were you drawn <laughs> that's, to it? That's, that's a great, that's a great story. Uh, because usually when people start music, it's because they want it, you know, they feel it, they love it. It was like the exact opposite for me. <laughs> I was way into martial arts back then, like, uh, uh, and even, even continued through just, uh, just about when I started the undergraduate studies. Um, I was way into uh, sciences, math in particular. Um, so music was somehow an extracurricular activity that just kind of happened. My dad and I, I remember we're walking in our neighborhood, uh, very small neighborhood, and uh, right next to the kindergarten where I, where I went as a kid, there was a small, small music school, you know, and it was maybe like a Sunday or Monday or, uh, you know, uh, and we passed the music school and it said auditions, you know, and my dad said, hey, you want to audition? I said, sure, you know, <laughs> I'll audition, whatever, you know, I think I was about 10 maybe. Roughly, uh, so we went in, inside, or I can't remember if it was on a different day, but in any case, I auditioned, had to sing a few tunes, um, 
And uh, then I had to provisionally pick an instrument. I said, I want to play violin. I want to play cello. I want to play piano. Uh, so my dad, my dad said, no, piano is too big. Violin, too squeaky from the beginning. Cello, uh, I don't remember what he said about cello. So he said, you're going to play guitar. So I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> so, so your dad, then, your, your dad decided for you. Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly happy I'm playing guitar. Guitar is a beautiful instrument, you know. Um, and, you know, fast forward many years, um, I still play the guitar and I'm enjoying it. Uh, but for the longest time, Paul, I know you and I have talked about how music makes us feel, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that sensation of goose bumpiness, you know, for, for quite a long time. But I do remember when that happened for the first time. I was, uh, I was already in the musical high school at that point. It's still kind of doing music just because, you know. And then I was listening to um, a pianist, a very famous pianist, Yevgeny Kisin, um, playing the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto. Right. And there's this part in the second movement that is just so beautiful, you know, so lush, so full of life and color and everything. And I remember feeling the sort of chills, you know, going through my entire body, you know. And so, oh, now I get it, you know. Now I get it. Uh, and, and that was like an aha moment for me. And from then on, I was, I sort of always kept chasing that feeling, you know, that, um, that beautiful aha, you know, beautiful chills, uh, yeah. magic, so to speak. Because you're drawn to math, you're obviously more left-brained. In your, think, so. in your thinking and right brain is the touchy feely creative mm -hmm. aspect. Mm -hmm. So you're dipping into both hemispheres and yet, yeah, the minute you have those goosebumps because Rachmaninoff pulls a lot mm -hmm. of that emotion. Rhapsody on the theme of mm -hmm. Paganini is mm -hmm. one that's used in one of the most romantic film, modern films of all, contemporary films of all time, somewhere in time. And the f it was Bob Marley that said, the first time music hits you, it really hits you. Oh, yeah. 100% true. <laughs> Fully supportive of that one. What was the first classical guitar piece, since you're a classical guitarist, that made you just, um, maybe not emotional, but maybe it was mm -hmm. the, the one that, that made you go, I want to do that. I want to really, or was that kind of the goal from the beginning in taking, because in Europe, you know, here, here you take guitar to learn John Denver. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Europe. Yeah. That's a whole nother story. They don't even, they might even know John Denver. Uh, I wonder if, I wonder if we know John Denver. I certainly did not know John Denver. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's a fantastic question, but I must say, I, I don't really know because I was sort of a geek about everything I was doing back then. I wanted to excel at everything that I was doing and that could have been pottery, you know, like, or, or, you know, putting potatoes in the ground. I wanted to have the best potatoes, you know, yeah. or, or, you know, be the best in guitar or be the fastest in calculus or not, you know, so it was, uh, my approach at the very beginning was very, was very geeky. I was just simply ambitious. Uh, there are a few pieces um, that really, you know, strike a chord uh, 
and have done so from the very early on. And there's, um, there's two platforms upon which I sort of draw that inspiration from. One is my dad had, as, uh, and this is before I started guitar, he had this disc of uh, John Williams, the guitarist. There's a very famous John Williams, the guitarist, uh, super famous. And there was a disc, a gray one called Spanish guitar. It's very simple. And there were some songs, some Catalan uh, um, folk songs that I remember fondly that are just so lush and beautiful. So that's one. And the second one was um, speaking of, you know, um, <laughs> that composers, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, the first time I really heard a good, good performance of the famous Chacon for the violin, uh, that really, I mean, hit the chord, you know. Uh, and when I heard it being done on the guitar for the first time, and then when I started learning it for the first time, um, that was a truly special, uh, special moment for me. Classical guitar music evolved originally out of Spain. Uh, yep. That would be about right. And then it spread out through Europe in more of a non-traditional route because mm -hmm. wasn't guitar music early on associated with gypsy lifestyle more than the Beethoven and the classical, the kings and the, you know, the, the governors and the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church. It was more affiliated with kind of the yeah. outside it's a, it's a, I would say it's a mixed bag of things. So for example, the guitar that we play today, like the traditional classical guitar, the form and shape was coined in Spain in the middle of 19th century um, by a famous luthier, Antonio de Torres. Right. But uh, we do have uh, the Baroque guitar, the, uh, the uh, Renaissance guitar. Uh, we have the vihuelas, we have the lutes, we have the theorbos, those are all sort of instruments that are pretty close to guitar, you know, and what influenced what, you know, is, uh, is more or less a speculation, you know, you can sort of follow the movement throughout the history. But for example, in courts, um, you know, you could hear, you could hear vihuelas being played, you could hear lutes being played, uh, you know, uh, for example, I'll give you an example, in the um, uh, 15-0 something, you know, so early 16th century, um, one of the most famous musicians in Europe at that time was uh, Francesco de Milano, and he was a lute player. Mm. And he was proclaimed by the Pope as the divine one, which, is, which was a very rare title to place upon any artist, you know. And he was the main lute player for the papacies, you know. So, um, but the guitar itself in a Spanish way, you know, that you're referring to, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you look at flamenco, for example, I mean, those guys are you know, a whole nother, uh, a whole other game of yeah. virtuosity it's... and, you know, just, just extreme, you know, so that, the, and so that's, there's also that, you know, so there's how yeah, it mixes there's, exactly. There's so question, many yeah. different instruments, you know, with the piano, mm -hmm. you have the piano, you have a keyboard, you have a harpsichord, mm -hmm. but, but the guitar, you know, from the lute, I mean, such a wide spectrum to Rabbi Sik Rabbi, uh, who played the um, with the Beatles, the, sitar? Uh, yeah, the sitar. Oh, uh, Ravi Shankar, Ravi Shankar. Yes, Nora Jones's Ravi father. Do, mm -hmm. do you know? Do you know how to play that instrument? I do not. Tried unfortunately, it. no. It's beautiful. <laughs> I tried. Yes, yeah. It takes mastery. Yeah. You need more fingers. In on that one. 
<laughs> or Plus longer, study for a bunch of nails. years. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you're, uh, what's interesting is your debut, your professional debut was mm -hmm. in 2009. You're only 22. You debuted in Russia, mm -hmm. uh, performing the Rodrigo Concerto de Aranres uh, yes. with the St. Petersburg Symphony. Yeah. That must yeah. have been... That was like, a special what, moment. What were you feeling? Uh, well, uh, that was my so that was my symphonic debut as a soloist with an orchestra. Um, and in in any right, I would say uh, for a classical music or for any musician to play with an orchestra is a big thing. You know, there's a there's one thing to play one instrument, but to have a train of sound come behind you and just fill out the space, it's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty humbling, you know. Um, uh, a few f emotions that I was feeling were, you know, were uh, certainly being really, really scared and terrified, you know, as number one. Uh, the sort of the uh, aura of, I can't believe this is happening when it was actually happening. And, you know, the, the sensation of, hurrah, I made it through at the end. And then, you know, this big relief of like the happy hormones, you know, and just uh, being super ecstatic about it. It's a, certainly an emotional turmoil. It um, yeah. still happens, by the way, when I play with orchestras, it, maybe not to that extent, so. I gotta tell you, my first concerto, mm -hmm. I wrote a concerto in high school. Yeah. And, and we performed it with the orchestra. Now, you debuted in Russia. I debuted an American trying to make Russian music. <laughs> so he got to the end and he started laughing because he's like, oh, this high school concerto that has like the worst time, it goes from 4-4 four, four to like 3-4 to 2-2 two, two to 6-12 or whatever, because I was just all over the place. <laughs> it was a mess. So you would have been the most frustrated person in the audience going, what is this? So, but it's a true rush when you get that full orchestra behind you. Oh, certainly. You know, and do you ever feel in the middle of that, like, uh-oh, what if I make a mistake? Or, or I, still have, I still have pizza in the fridge? Or <laughs> what are you thinking when you're playing? Well, a, a, a pizza is a stretch, I would say. <laughs> the klobasse, but I got I a klobasse hanging over here. <laughs> I, but uh, I certainly have felt uh, hungry you know, thirsty people. Um, making a mistake, um, well, you touch upon an interesting uh, problematic that each classical musician faces. So the short answer is yes. But the a little bit longer answer is, you know, we are taught to be this sort of like um, glossy images of uh, perfection when reinterpreting other people's works, you know, and we get very, very frustrated when something goes amiss, just a little bit, maybe one note, maybe another note, you know. But there was one moment in my performing career, um, maybe a roughly about six, seven years ago, where I um, shared the stage with a famous Brazilian guitar duo, uh, the Assad brothers, and uh, they are complete legends, you know, in the field, like totally, I mean, someone you look up to as oh, yeah. you grow up, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, and to share the stage with them, I mean, similarly, so I was ner a nervous wreck, you know, but to see them be so relaxed, so heartfelt, so sharing with the music that they were playing, you know, some Brazilian, some, uh, 
I, there was some Aaron Copeland, I remember, some Piazzolla, stuff like that. But, you know, and listening up close, they made quite a few mistakes, but no one cared, you know, because their heart was in it so much. So the people were just, I mean, they, they were taking on this train um, of feeling. And w when everything was done, it was just this ecstatic moment. You know, everyone just jumped on their feet. And it, that was an aha moment as well for me because I was like, well, if, um, if music is a language and when we speak, we often, you know, uh, mispronounce some words. It's normal. It's pretty human, you know but we're still carrying out the message. Why can't this be the same with music? It's uh, uh, why do we need to uh, strive towards being this glossy, uh, you know, almost robotic perfections where we can certainly allow ourselves to be more human. So uh, these days, the concept of making a mistake is certainly less present in my, in my mind. And uh, I think it makes it for a healthier performer. You ever, take these principles of music, you know, we're talking perfection and imperfection. Mm -hmm. Do you ever take those analogies to apply to life, life in general, when life gets challenging and hard and you're trying to stay on top of your game and yet you make mistakes? Do you ever think about yeah, some of those uh, things? I do actually. Um, you know, for example, when, when having a relationship with someone, you know, it's so easy to think that one is completely right all the time, you know. Um, of course, that's not true, you know. And the fact that we realize and accept that we make mistakes makes it easier for us to understand the other person's perspective and makes it easier to, to create a, a healthy, you know, well-energized environment. Uh, whereas if we would say as, you know, as it is certainly the old traditional way, no, it is just this way, in classical music and no other way, then we come to a very rigid sense of uh, reality, you know, and it certainly makes us more unhappy if those expectations are not met. So, so I mean, absolutely, it's, uh, we all make mistakes all the time. And the, the more we recognize that, the, the more we can grow as people. What was one of the most challenging experiences of your career so far where you just felt like, maybe, I, I, maybe I'm done? Uh, well, um, it was actually right now, it was actually uh, as Corona hit because my whole career was based on, um, on touring, you know, 90 to 100 concerts a year. That was my income. That was my life. You know, that's something I built uh, throughout quite many years. Um, and, you know, life threw me a curveball and I was like, well, what now, you know, uh, and there was certainly a period and you and I were talking throughout that period. I was like, man, you know, what's up? I don't know what's yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were going to go to Croatia and Slovenia and do a little tour together. We were together. about to do a, a little tour there That's together right. even, you know, and I was just like, what's up now? You know? Yeah. But in situations like that, when things become difficult, uh, I think the character then of a person shows, well, you know, are you, uh, are you flexible? Are you a fighter? What do you believe in? What do you love? What do you strive for? So um, even though at the beginning, in the first few months, uh, it was very challenging and difficult emotionally just to accept that things may be different. It, it has also been one of the most beautiful uh, periods of my life, you know, because uh, I mean, ultimately, 
uh, it gave me the momentum and time to start to compose my own music, to become the interpreter of what I feel, you know? And that is, that is one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had in my life. And, um, and you know, I, even, though, even though it's quite scary, you know, and it's like, you see the numbers and you're like, whoa. But still, I mean, I'm like, well, it was a curveball, but yeah. it was a good one for me, you know? So, um, so that was certainly one of the most challenging uh, times in my, in my career, adult career, I, I should say, you know? But I'm happy with how it's, how it's uh, evolving, you know, this whole new scenario. And for those listening, I've heard some of this new material from him and, and uh, it's such beautiful, beautiful and yet it's still got the complexity of the classical training in there and so i think it's really gonna set a new stage a new uh uh it's gonna it's gonna lead in some way uh i feel in classical music because you know we do obsess over the past uh and the perfection of music from the past and that music's been tested time and time again uh to be to be listenable and so when you put out something new it's very risky but you're all you're drawing all from inside and from every yep. all your experience and everything you've known and you would think that this covid period hopefully has enabled musicians of all kinds mm -hmm. to create things that never were before to dream mm -hmm. of things that never were before i know in my production of, you know, creating the broken miracle, it's been mind blowing because I haven't been distracted by other things because I'm able to focus because mm -hmm. I'm here mm -hmm. and present. What, uh, you know, obviously you draw on the fact that it's been tough mainly because you've created, you've got a, a festival that you run that you're in charge of and mm -hmm. you're normally out playing how many festivals a year are you normally, how many, how many shows a year are you usually doing? Well, it's about, a, uh, it's about 90 to 100 shows yearly. And uh, in terms of festivals, I mean, I, I either co-curate or, uh, or actually, you know, oversee, uh, you know, uh, in total at about 18 different festivals. Um, there's some that I directly oversee and there's some that I work with uh, via you know, uh, a, a European network of guitar festivals that, that embodies sort of the union of 17 countries over there. So there's, there's quite a lot of festival work that's been done over the past few years. But I mean, needless to say, it's been challenging right now. Um, and we're all sort of thinking of how to finagle this scenario to the, to the best possible uh, end game, you know. Uh, yeah. we'll, see, we'll see what that is ultimately. But it's uh, <laughs> certainly works those uh, great bra uh, brain cells, you know, uh, puts a, puts them to challenge. What was it like when you got the phone call that Katie Lang, Katie Lang wanted you oh, to uh, it was, do, uh, do the American it was, tour? Goodness, I mean, it was uh, it was quite spectacular, um, and uh, it was also sort of like a, a cosmic alignment at that. <laughs> I remember that day because I was. I was just talking to um, to a guitar duo from uh, from Australia, uh, the Gregorian brothers, and uh, I was hanging out with their manager in New York City, um, and they were 
actually the initial act that okay. was opening for Katie in several different tours. Um, but that they, for some reason, couldn't do it, you know, couldn't do that thing. So somehow, and this was about an hour after I said goodbye to the manager, I got a phone call. I said, hey, do you want to do the Katie Langter? I'm like, what is going on here? You know, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is too much of a coincidence. So anyhow, um, it was a beautiful tour that we did, and it was um, for me an insight into the industry that is uh, that that is different uh, from mine. And one of the be most beautiful uh, feelings that I felt during that whole time was how how fans are in it. You know how deeply they feel the connection to the music, how they respond vocally, and because. Uh, KD's fans and KD has uh, has some kind of an aura, it seems, and some kind of a beautiful rapport with the uh, with the audience. They were equally as susceptible, it seemed, to my little opener, you know. Um, and I only she, played like about. Go ahead. It's because she pretty much put her blessing uh, on I, your I music. I suppose so. And wow. I, I only had a thirty-minute window at the very beginning. But they were in it, you know, they were doing the little flashlight thingy, they were cheering when there was something interesting going on, you know, and it was, it was, I, I want that for classical music. I want that kind of a um, rapport and following and uh, enthusiasm, you know. Um, and you and I have talked about this ages ago, you know, classical music was that, it was party music, you know, in many respects, you know. Uh, operas were essentially big gatherings where people were enjoying themselves. Uh, so um, somehow that divide became bigger and bigger because the concept of high art became more sort of coined in. Yeah. But I think that feeling of people enjoying what you do is just spectacular. I mean, I think it should be always like that. It seems like classical music has found more of a experience like that in film. They've had to attach it to a a visual experience mm -hmm. versus you know back when they would have the you know the the cardinal would have a ball or the governor or anything mm -hmm. and they'd bring in the classical players and everybody was into it uh i think it probably because they've never heard the beatles they never heard elvis you know chuck berry or any of these people and so it's interesting but you know we have talked about that there is a obsession uh, mm -hmm. in the classical world where it has to be a certain way, you mm -hmm. know, it has to be this, it has to be that, you know, it's kind of like when I, like, for example, uh, maybe this is a bad idea, but I, when I started the podcast, they said, oh, don't wear sure. a hat, <laughs> don't wear a hat, get a nice studio. But I mean, people live in homes, you got to be relaxed a little bit. And I think classical music in a way takes us up to the divine. And then the music we're doing now kind of just brings us back to reality with mm -hmm. hopes, with hopes to access the mm -hmm. divine. But uh, do you think living in Europe, the, the respect for classical music is different than say in the United States where popular music kind of dominates or is it the same response? That's a, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, I would say certainly the 
and it's not even all the countries in Europe, uh, mind you, but you know, some of the more, uh, some of those that have a bigger history with art and music, let's say, I think those countries pride themselves um, with being culturally very aware, you know, um, culturally educated, I think is the right, uh, the right term. So whether or not they're truly enjoying the music with all their hearts, um, they, you know, still go uh, in big numbers to concerts, you know, they, and they, they study the music, they, they, they know what they're listening to. Um, so there's a certain uh, bit of an intellectual approach to that, um, classical music speaking, right? We have pop music too, and we enjoy, um, you know, uh, listening to all sorts of other stuff, right? Uh, in America, I think people approach it with a less of a need for an educated perspective, but more with a need for um, some kind of feel-good momentum, you know, kind of a, a little bit of entertainment, uh, you know, thing going. Uh, and I think, I think that may be the biggest, the biggest difference. I still would see the Disney Hall in Los Angeles or Carnegie Hall or any of the big halls full at capacity right. almost each time, you know, so it's not like people don't go, people do go. They do. I just think they, they want to enjoy them, uh, their, themselves more. Uh, for example, that's that is showcased very easily through uh, the uh, culture of clapping. In Vienna, for example, uh, they clap. Very rarely would you, would you hear a shout out, you know? Mm. Very rarely would you see someone stand up. But they could clap for hours. I mean, they could clap a long time, you know? Um, but it's all sort of like in this medium consistent uh, uh, region in the States, people react strongly immediately, you know, they jump up, hurrah, you know, and then, but then they, then it dies down quicker also. So that immediate emotional response is more there, you know, and in Asia, it's, I mean, it's, it's even more drastic in Asia. I often felt like they totally hated my performance, you know, because it was so subdued, you know, but in fact, supposedly, they're just being very polite. They don't want to disturb me, you know, or our performers. Being you know? respectful. And then afterwards, they come and buy thousands of CDs, you know. <laughs> so, it's so, so it's, uh, yeah. I love that. That's so interesting because yeah. what you're describing, my father was a journalist mm -hmm. and his job uh, had him go to Europe with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And this was back when it was still the Soviet Union. It, the, the Berlin Wall was still up. Vienna, Salzburg, all those places is where the choir was going to go. And a big part of the documentary about that performance was focused on the clapping. Because mm -hmm. the choir coming from Salt Lake City, Utah, in America was very unfamiliar with how an audience responds. And so in Vienna, the clapping but no shout out was so different from mm -hmm. what they were used to. And then all these different places, they would say, they didn't know if they were excited about the performance, <laughs> but then yeah, afterwards they couldn't sometimes. get enough of meeting the performers. Yeah. Yes, yes. Amazing. That's, uh, describes us about right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because 
I, you know, I love when we're in Slovenia with our family because there seems to be more of an emphasis on enjoying the time together. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, family gets together. So I can see why classical music starts to have more of a, you know, it's more of a, 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 an experience of class, of sophistication, Mm -hmm. uh, even as a kid, you know, we were told in elementary school, we're going to see the symphony. So make sure your parents get you a nice uh, outfit to a wear, tire. preferably outfit, a suit, yeah. wear a tie. So yeah. early on, I associated classical music with putting a tie on and, and going. Sort of uncomfortable. <laughs> uncomfortable until yeah, yeah. I was actually present. Mm -hmm. And I heard mm -hmm. the symphony mm -hmm. do, um, they did the William Tell Overture. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful one. So I was hooked. I was mm -hmm. hooked early on. But uh, so you right now have been working on some more contemporary, original music. Mm -hmm. What has it been like for you to step away from reading and 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 memorizing and practice technique to freeing up your fingers a little bit and trying to expand your mind. What's that process like for you? It's, it's, been, a, it's been a true blessing. I mean, there's, there was a brief period there of, you know, the, pa the first three, four months of, uh, of, of the isolation where I was trying to find a creative outlet that would make me happy because my creative outlet before was here's this program, learn it. Here's that program, learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it. Right. Um, and now I didn't have really any obligation to learn anything. I could have learned all the Bach works that are playable on the guitar. I could have learned all the X, Y, Z composers, but it just wasn't, it wasn't working for me. So uh, in the late evening hours, what I started doing was, uh, a little bit of um, sitting outside, listening to the beat of uh, the peaceful city. You know, I, I tend to stay up late. I, I enjoy the late hours. Uh, so Los Angeles and downtown where, where I used to live um, had a certain vibe at night. You know, it was at that time, and I think maybe still is, I'm not in downtown anymore. Uh, it was a little bit of an eerie vibe, but peaceful, you know? And there were sounds, you know, I don't know, here and there a bird, there's maybe one car coming by, or there's some kind of city the vibe. whisper, you know? Yeah. And I was, I just started, I just started improvising over that, you know? Um, and I would say ultimately uh, that sharpened my ears much more. You know, I, I can now relate what I play with a more emotional, physical connection. Mm. Whereas before there could have been a disconnect because the intellect would come in and, and sort of put a pit stop on what I feel as opposed to what I have to do, you know? And sometimes those two things would come together, you know? The intellect and the emotional landscapes would align and they would, you know, be happy hand in hand or something, you know? but this was pure, this was just pure, unobstructed, a feel, 
you know, and it opened this sen sensoric uh, possibilities for me that I've essentially almost never tapped into before, you know, just kind of trusting what I hear. And I went with that. And this gave birth, you know, to I think now 50 plus minutes of music that's already re recorded, you know, and well on the way of becoming an actual album. Um, and in many ways, I, I want to say that it sharpened my musical senses because not, now not only I, do I trust what I've learned throughout the years and years of academia, I actually trust my ears uh, that what I hear has some value. And that has been a transcending experience. It's like almost becoming one and one, uh, one, what's the word? Um, uh, becoming one with oneself. That's, yes. the, that's the phrase, yeah. Creating harmony. Creating harmony, um, self-harmony. Harmony. Beautiful, beautiful feeling. One of the things that I've found to be somewhat challenging by focusing on the immediate gratification of creating a contemporary piece is that when I create something very mellow, well, very beautiful, most often it's very mellow, it's very calming, it's very soothing, but it's not interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. So when you start to venture into instrumentalists that, you know, in the United States where we're such a visual, we have to see things, we have to watch things. For example, uh, uh, my cellist that I signed years ago, Stephen Sharp Nelson. He created the Piano Guys with John Schmidt, and they started by doing Coldplay video, uh, an interpretation of a Coldplay song. So it was amazing to watch. It was very exciting to watch. But the emotion wasn't all there that he had done on his albums that had debuted mm -hmm. on the classical charts and had really streamed really well. So mm -hmm. do you find that there's, do you have any of that struggle where you want to create something mellow, but you also are concerned about technique and making sure that it's interesting to watch? Do you think like that? Or do you focus just on um, the music? I really, I really don't, I must say. Um, there was a, a, a while ago that I've learned that technique works best flashiness works best if it's in service of music and a musical idea um, in classical music we all learn technique almost exclusively i'm not saying 100 percent, but almost exclusively as a separate entity separate part practice these scales practice these arpeggios do this do that and it's it's on a separate plane and then we think about music on a different one and then hopefully we merge that um, and in my performance, uh, you know, capacity, I always struggled with the idea of doing those separately and then combining them later. So when I started, when I started thinking about, let's, let's say something that is flashy, something that's cool to see, you know, but difficult to do as just one other normal phrase, one other normal okay. musical thought like this, it was easy to do, no big deal, you know? And whereas before it was hard to wrap my mind around. So uh, playing music like this right now, it's, it's, I almost do not think about how I play this. I really just play, you know? Yeah. Which fingers to use, doesn't really matter as long as the musical idea comes, comes through and conveys the emotion in the best way.
Well, that's, I've never thought about that. Yeah. So thank you. If uh, you know the technique, focus on the technique and it all comes together in the end. Cause I'm usually just sitting down and what do I feel? And I play it and mm -hmm. then I come back to it and I go, Oh, maybe I'll keep that. Yeah. yeah. And other times it's like, no, 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 I'm get, get rid of it. So, <laughs> you know, where I felt, uh, where I felt this realization was, uh, it's an interesting sort of loop backwards to our, uh, the beginning of our conversation when we mentioned flamenco players. Um, when I saw Paco de Lucia's um, last concert in Los Angeles, which was in Disney Hall, you know, and he was uh, at a certain age, I don't remember exactly, but it might have been about a year before he passed, mm. uh, passed away. Um, and still, blazing fast. And I was just like sitting there and thinking, how is that possible? He's playing like, a thousand and five hundred notes a minute, you know, or a, or half a minute. I don't know, you know, so fast. And then, and then I again was that aha moment. I said, well, maybe he's not thinking about them as one thousand five hundred notes per half a minute. Maybe he's just thinking of it as one little breath. That's right. And then it's so easy, you know. So yeah. is it flashy for him? Probably not. For him, it's probably just another breath, you know? And for us is, whoa, what just happened, you know? And uh, if one has even a little bit of technique, I think that uh, mindset is very easy to apply, you know? You feel something and you go with it, you know? Is it faster, is it slower? Doesn't matter, it's how we feel, right? you know? And that's, that has been a very refreshing uh, uh, moment for me, you know? I said, oh, I'll just, I'll just do that, it's gonna be, much better for me, you know. <laughs> our instruments become an extension of our body, in You're, essence. Yes, exactly so. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, yeah. gosh, Mark, Mark, uh, I'm super excited about this project. And uh, one of the last questions I like to ask my guests mm -hmm. uh, that kind of dives more into your heart, because this is all heart, is a mm -hmm. hundred, two hundred years from now, when we're all gone. Mm -hmm. What is it that you hope people will remember about you? Mm. Do you ever think like that? I do, I do. And it's, uh, um, it's a tough question to answer regardless. Uh, I would say, uh, be it associated with music or just with anything that is potentially left behind by me, I would want people to have a, a, a little smile on their faces when they think, think about that, you know? It can be music, it can be something else, but that there's a positive association and a feel-good moment uh, that, you know, maybe brightens their day for just a second. That's beautiful. Uh, people can go to your website, Mark Gurgic, and uh, it's M-A-K-G-R-G-I-C. Did I pronounce that it's correct? Tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah because I, I need to buy a vowel. <laughs> you need to buy several vowels, uh, or just strike them all. Uh, strike the, the full thing out. Just go with Mac. And your existing materials on, I mean, it's available on Pandora and Spotify and everywhere. It's available, <clears throat> um, you know. And uh, I'm particularly excited about this project to come out and uh, to see how uh, how the listeners. Uh, how the listeners react if it if it makes them feel feel good that'll be an interesting thing to see yeah well it's uh, it's a shift 
it's a dramatic shift from some of your other recordings. Mm -hmm. But yes, uh, I know my fans who like that contemporary instrumental, they're going to go nuts. They're going to think they're in the candy store with this new album of yours. So <laughs> it's really exciting. So well, thank, thank you for you being Paul. on All Heart, Mock. Oh, it's a pleasure to see a familiar face, to share some thoughts and uh, yeah. some positive vibes, hopefully. Yeah, thanks.